This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on behalf of the New Books Network for the Archaeology Channel with Professor Christopher Gerard. He is a professor of archaeology at the University of Durham. His team recently published last year in 2018, Lost Lives, New Voices, Unlocking the Stories of the Scottish Soldiers from the Battle of Dunbar, 1650. Welcome to the show, Professor Gerard. Hello, good evening. So first off, I'd like to uh, discuss a little bit about this striking cover. Can you uh, tell uh, both uh, actually me and our listeners how uh, you selected the cover, what the cover is all about? I think sometimes with a, when you're trying to think about a book cover, it can take longer than writing the book. And uh, that was certainly the case here. We had a lot of images to play with Uh and a lot of those are scattered through the contents of the pages of the book. And we put all those on the table and mixed and matched them to try and come up with a uh, a story, really, which reflected uh, the, the text within. And that's not very easy to do because, as we'll see, uh, this story uh, begins in Scotland and uh, ends on your side of the Atlantic. And trying to reflect each part of that journey in a set of photographs was difficult to do without making it look like a a PowerPoint presentation. So we ended up picking up on a couple of key aspects. The first was the city of Durham itself, uh, which is where, as it were, the action takes place. And there's a classic photograph of the 12th century Durham Cathedral taken uh, looking up from uh, the river uh, up towards the towers at the west end of the cathedral. And so that's on the cover. Uh, and then we also wanted to tell the reader that there was going to be some archaeology and specifically some archaeological science. So the, the left-hand side of the, of the cover is a kind of shaded out uh, version of a part of a skull. Uh, and underneath it, uh, you can see a little figure of a, of a Scottish soldier uh, holding uh, the, uh, the Scottish flag that would have been carried into battle, a Scottish uh, tire, in fact. So we combined all of these together. In fact, the thing we missed out, I guess, was the uh, was the U.S. side of the story, but we had to make some sacrifices. So please set the stage for our listeners by tracing the contemporary events that culminated in the exposing of three human skulls on November 21st, 2013. 
found in a in uh, the south end of a yard between Palace Green Library buildings and Windy Gap near Durham Cathedral in England. Yeah, so this was a a wet, windy Thursday evening, as I recall, uh, and I was nice and warm in my office uh, when the phone rang, and a voice on the other end said, uh, "I think you better get up here. We found something." One of those kind of moments which um, I look back on as as being the start of my involvement in this story. So I made my way up uh, from the archaeology department up towards the cathedral. It was getting dark, actually. Um, and there, uh, in, a, in a small plot, uh, in amongst some library buildings, there was a really quite a small hole had been dug uh, by by a JCB by a by a digger, and at the bottom of this little hole, you could just see poking through uh, some human skeletons. And at that stage, we had absolutely no idea how old they were or what kind of date they might be. Um, really, really no idea at all. But um, but actually, the the, the digger driver who was uh, a guy, I suppose, in his mid fifties. He'd, uh, he lent out the cab and he said, I'll tell you who they are. They'll be those, they'll be those Scottish soldiers, I reckon. And I think it took us five years, uh, to prove him right. So quite a while. But there'd been archaeologists on the site there for about three weeks and uh, nothing had come to light at all. We were within the, the World Heritage Site, which sits between Durham Castle and Durham Cathedral. And there had been an archaeologist present undertaking a, what we call a watching brief, just to have somebody on site just in case something's found. Uh, and thankfully they were there and they kept their eyes open and, uh, and we started to reveal these, these skeletons. And so the construction work was stopped. It was construction work for a, a little cafe that the university was building. And that was put on hold for a few weeks while, uh, the excavation began. Uh, on the on the skeletons under the ground. So why would the first thoughts of archaeologists be that the remains could be some of the prisoners from the Battle of Dunbar? If possible, uh, please also address the English Civil War events that culminated in this Battle of Dunbar, which took place on September 3rd, 1650, as well as the uh, thousands of Scottish captives um, in your response. So I think people in Durham, people who live in Durham, uh, are aware of the story of the Scottish soldiers, what happened after the Battle of Dunbar. There's always been a, I guess you call it an urban myth, uh, that uh, a great number of soldiers died uh, somewhere in the cathedral and castle, but their their bodies have never been found. And there have been a number of occasions when people have said, hey, you know, maybe that's what this is, when, when they've been digging holes for uh, electricity, um, wiring and cabling for wi-fi and so on um but nothing had ever been firmly established and generally speaking speaking people were casting doubt on these kinds of interpretations um but as it happened the the digger driver had been a local schoolboy and he'd gone to the cathedral uh for a tour around the cathedral when he was a kid when he was eight or nine years old and he'd heard about the scottish soldiers there from one of the cathedral guides, and I, I guess it had stayed with him. 
And it's interesting, actually, looking at the the archaeology of the site, looking back on that now, because it's clear that these skeletons have been discovered previously. They had been seen on at least three previous occasions, and uh, nobody had ever said anything. So when buildings went up, when walls were built, uh, people, for one reason or another, they kept their mouths shut. And that may be because uh, they thought that they were looking at skeletons from the from the cathedral graveyard, which is right alongside. Uh, or it may be that uh, they felt that uh, it would interrupt the building works in the, the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. And perhaps it was better not to say anything at all. Um, but for one reason or another, people do know about the Dunbar story in, in, in Durham. Uh, and it's a complicated story which uh, takes place in the middle of the 17th century at a time of civil war uh, across England. And for most of this period, the Scots are actually allied with the English uh, against the royalists and the king. And in January 1649, the king is uh, executed. Uh, Charles I uh, in Whitehall outside the banqueting house. Uh, he loses his head then and almost immediately afterwards the Scots begin to negotiate with his son, the future Charles II, who will later take the throne in 1660. So they ally with Charles II against the parliamentarians and against Oliver Cromwell and in so doing the Scots become the enemies of the English. The English begin to worry uh, that there will be an invasion by the Scots of the north of England, and so they decide to preempt that by crossing the border with a force of about 15,000 men in July 1650. And they begin to uh, push the Scots back towards Edinburgh. There are a number of skirmishes, no real engagement between the armies. Uh, but then uh, Cromwell begins to run out of supplies and food, and he steps back towards his most convenient harbour and port, which is at Dunbar in the northeast of Scotland. It's about 25 miles southeast of Edinburgh. And he hopes to get supplies in there. But as he's waiting, the Scots arrive with a much more significant force, almost double the number of men that Cromwell has, perhaps 22,000 troops uh, in all. And the armies uh, square up uh, against each other just outside the little town and port of Dunbar uh, in, on the days leading up to September the 3rd in 1650. So... According to archaeological and archival evidence, what happened to the captives from the resulting battle uh, during the forced march south to Newcastle and then to Durham Cathedral? Can you uh, describe the daily and nightly experience of captivity in the cathedral, um, evidence of the captives' labor, um, as well as the transfer of ailing captives to the castle? Do you believe that the, cathol- uh, the cathedral captives destroyed interior fabrics and woodworks, as is often ar- argued? So at the battle itself, which is a a surprise victory for Cromwell, he he writes to a friend on the evening before the battle, 
uh, to say that he doesn't think he's going to come out of this. Um, but due to his uh, superior tactics and uh, his more experienced fighting men, the battle is actually over within an hour. Uh, and this is a, a remarkable, a remarkable feat. Uh, and Cromwell unexpectedly takes prisoner 10,000 Scottish men. He then has to decide what he's going to do because he doesn't want to release them all uh, because presumably he fears that they will turn to fight him again. And at the same time, he has in the back of his mind the need for, for labour, uh, projects of improvement, both in England, a long way to the south, and across the Atlantic and the colonies. And so he decides to divide the men into two groups. The first group, more than 5,000, are sent home. And those are the old men and those that are worst wounded. And he's left with about 3,900. And these 3,900, he turns to march south. And he intends to imprison those men in Durham Cathedral. Why Durham Cathedral? Because Durham Cathedral is at that time a large, empty building, not being used for any religious services uh, by the Puritans at that period. The, the bishop has gone, the clerics have fled. So it's a large, empty building, and probably the only building within quite a radius in which he could get that number of people. A uh, 17th century prison only would take about uh, 100 men at the most. So he's aiming to send these men south through uh, a number of different towns uh, along the way. And as they march, uh, so they begin to fall by the wayside. We know that some are stop and refuse to go further, uh, probably because they haven't been fed. And incidentally, they hadn't been fed on the days before the battle either. And 30 men are shot. Uh, for refusing to continue. It's likely that quite a large number of men escape back towards their homes before they cross the border into England, and that probably quite a significant number, perhaps over a 100, maybe more. And then as they get further south, it's a journey of about a 100 miles, so they begin to fall ill. And we know that uh, both armies are infected with dysentery, uh, what in the 17th century is called the flux, and dehydrated, with stomach cramps, with very little to eat, uh, probably uh, no water, and uh, a long march ahead of them and behind them, uh, they begin to die. And when the men arrive uh, in Durham, their destination, uh, there are only between 3,000 and 3,500 men left. So. Between 400 and 900 men die on an eight-day march uh, over 100 miles as they travel from Dunbar down towards Durham. When they arrive in the cathedral, the cathedral, as I say, is a large, empty, cold building in September. Uh, no central heating back then. Um, and uh, I'm guessing that uh, the experience would have been pretty terrifying. Uh, they were mostly very young men. Uh, they were a long way from home, a long way from their families. 
They would have been cold. They would have been tired. I guess they would have wanted to sleep. And it would have actually been very difficult for them to lie down, even in such a large building, because even in a very large uh, concert or congregation in the cathedral today, you can only get 1,600, 1,700 people sitting down. And here we're talking about a minimum of 3,000 men. So I guess they took it in turns to, to lie down and sleep, and they huddled in groups around the walls and up against the columns. Uh, they would never have been in a building that large uh, in their lives. Um, so I guess a huge anxiety about what would happen to them. This would begin to play on their minds. And most seriously of all, around them, people are getting very, very sick. And we know that between the date of their arrival, which is the 12th of September, uh, to the 31st of October, a period of about six weeks, about 1,600 people die in the cathedral. Uh, some of them, the sickest, are taken just across the road, really, to Durham Castle, uh, and they die there. Uh, in Durham Castle. And the commander of the north, sounds rather Game of Thrones, but uh, he was the man who was in charge of uh, of what was happening. He was a man called Ifa Hazelrig. He was a friend of uh, Oliver Cromwell's. Uh, he tried his best, I think, to make sure that the men were, were, were nursed, uh, that they were kept warm, uh, so they were given braziers to put coals in, uh, which they lit, um, and which they huddled around. And the scorch marks of those braziers actually can still be seen if you visit the cathedral today, if you know where to look. So they were fed, they were nursed, but the situation quite simply slipped out of control. And Hazelrig didn't have the means or the knowledge uh, to be able to understand what was happening and why so many people were dying, and why they were dying so quickly. Evidently, from his account, people seemed to be dying within the space of only a few hours. So within the cathedral, those that lived, uh, they were fed, they were kept warm. And you asked a question about how they kept warm, and I think that they did burn uh, some of the woodwork inside the cathedral. We know that some of that woodwork was replaced later in 1660, and the Scots were blamed for that damage. But I don't think uh, that they did some of the damage which they've traditionally been blamed for. So people say today uh, that they damaged some of the alabaster tombs in the cathedral, which are significantly damaged. But it is possible that those tombs were damaged beforehand, and I don't think they would have had the means. Uh, to be able to uh, to carry out that kind of damage on those monuments. They wouldn't have had knives or uh, sledgehammers or any kind of implements to make that possible. So I think they're innocent of many of the charges. I think, frankly, they were too sick uh, to be able to think about much else uh, other than eating and survival. And they must have been extremely scared young men. So uh, focusing on a conceptual framework, what is, you referred to the, in the study uh, to conflict archaeology of Atlantic worlds. 
Um, why did you ca- categorize the ensuing excavations as such, and who c- comprised the team that spearheaded the dig? So conflict archaeology is quite a broad term that refers both to prehistoric warfare, right the way up, way up to, uh, to modern engagements. Uh, and it includes a variety of activities uh, with which archaeologists can help to try for, to find out more. I suppose most obviously it concerns battlefield archaeology, military action on the field. But the same techniques apply to any form of military engagement, sieges, for example, and skirmishes, the mass graves in which people are sometimes buried on battlefields and, as in this case, quite a distance away from them. It applies also to the study of associated chapels and buildings and uh, commemorative places. And most of all, thanks actually to uh, influence from battlefield archaeology, which developed in the US in the 1980s, it's about artifact scatters on the battlefield and plotting these artifact scatters, often using metal detectors, pick up, in this case, lead projectiles like uh, musket balls and cannonballs can give you considerable insight into how a particular military engagement played out. Um, And so the job of the archaeologist in conflict archaeology is to, I guess, test interpretations, often historical interpretations if they exist, and also to try to place those engagements into the landscape, back into the local terrain. And a number of big projects have been undertaken of this type uh, in Britain over the past few years. Uh, The big ones, I suppose, are those at Bosworth, uh, at uh, Towton in Yorkshire, uh, and at Naseby, which is a civil war battle. And these results are gradually being published and are influencing very much the way that we approach this subject uh, which is which is now a topic which has its own journal I and mean, there is actually a journal of conflict archaeology uh, which is a, a multidisciplinary journal as it should be uh, which involves information from written documents about battlefields as well as the archaeological evidence so that's what i meant when i wanted to include our study in battlefield archaeology uh, and in conflict archaeology we were particularly keen in this case to move away from very detailed discussions of what might have happened on the battlefield because that's reasonably well documented. The story that I wanted to tell in the book is a story of people. And I think all the best archaeology is about people ultimately. And here we had the opportunity to tell the stories of people's lives, people who'd got mostly inadvertently caught up in this terrible battle and its aftermath, and to try to think about their journeys from a home in Scotland through events at Dunbar in September 1650, through Durham, and then, in some cases, their journey over the Atlantic uh, to, to the colonies in Massachusetts. And that really was a story that I wanted to tell. I wanted to demonstrate that that archaeology could make a real contribution to that. So the digging on the site and the team uh, which did that digging did a remarkable job, actually, 
uh, in disentangling uh, the skeletal evidence of the two mass graves which we were able to identify. It wasn't a very big team actually, there were only at the most uh, three people on site. The site itself was tiny, uh, only four or five meters by uh, three to four meters at its maximum extent. And we didn't excavate everything uh, which is there under the ground. Uh, we we left everything which was not to be disturbed by the construction works for the cafe. So there's a lot more uh, underneath the standing buildings uh, in and around the University Library there, up on Palace Green near the cathedral. So uh, for the less than 30 skeletons found at the site, which you've already alluded to, amounted to a fraction of the 1,600 captives who most likely died there. Can you describe uh, grave pits and identify examples, I guess, of age and sex distributions, uh, body positions, as well as arm and hand positions? And I I noticed this. Why were most of the skeletons buried along a south-north, or I guess a a north-south axis? What we found in the excavation were parts of two pits, and each of those pits were relatively shallow and would have contained, if we'd seen them intact, between 30 to 40 individuals. As it was, we only excavated in total uh, 28. We left one in the ground uh, underneath some buildings which couldn't be uh, fully extracted. So 29 in total we were able to identify. Um, we we recognised while the excavation was taking place that we were probably dealing with some kind of mass grave. Uh, although mass graves in archaeology, particularly in Britain, are usually associated in archaeologists' minds with the Black Death, actually, with epidemics uh, which caused large numbers of casualties. And so at the beginning, uh, although, as I've said, the digger driver was keen to point out they could be the remains of men from Dunbar, we weren't so sure. And our original interpretation over those first few weeks was that they might have been men who had died, uh, and women as well, uh, who had died from some kind of plague, which plague is known to have affected Durham on several occasions. Uh, even as late as the 16th century. So that was our first uh, diagnosis, as it were. We noticed, uh, as you mentioned, that the the body positions were unusual. Uh, so you would expect in a Christian burial for the burial to be east-west, uh, and you would expect that the head would be in the west, facing the east. And in this case, most of the burials were more or less, not exactly, uh, south-north, and they were dumped uh, one on top of another, again, something which is not at all unusual. And the, in some cases, the legs were flexed. In some cases, the arms were flexed, almost shielding the face, actually. Um, and these are not at all the kinds of uh, body postures that you would expect to find in a, in a, in a Christian cemetery. So we knew that we were dealing with something uh, very different. There was also no evidence of any artifacts. So there were no pens, there were no buckles, nothing of that sort at all. So we knew right away that these men had been buried naked um, and that they had been thrown into a pit which was perhaps uh, three or four metres across, something like that. 
And actually, when you look at uh, mass graves, mass graves which are comparatively recent, you know, those from the Second World War, for example, those from the Civil War in Spain in the 1930s, and other uh, 30 years war graves from the 17th century, you'll see that they tend to have almost a set of standard measurements. And this is because when you're disposing of bodies rapidly and in large numbers, you don't want to step down into the grave and you don't want to have a grave cut, which is wider than you can throw a body. So they tend to be more or less fairly standard measurements, which can then be covered over as quickly as possible with soil. And that seems to be the case here. We did find evidence on the bodies uh, of some rat gnawing. Uh, it's possible that the bodies were stockpiled before they were buried. And at the rate that they were dying, a rate of about 30 a day, I suppose you have to imagine if we averaged out that one of these pits was being dug uh, by the guards uh, from the castle, every single day a pit was being dug. Um, so it was a fairly rapid and continuous operation which continued over a six-week period. And what we'd found were just two of uh, you know, several dozen of, of these pits. But it was clear right away that we weren't dealing with anything which was anything to do with the graveyard cemetery. And had that been the case, we would have been looking at uh, individual grave cuts and uh, skeletons which were placed on, a, on an east-west axis. And that we certainly didn't have. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. What did uh, developmental anomalies, dental health assessments, and diagnoses of various uh, metabolic as well as infectious diseases all reveal about the lives of the human beings interred, interred in the grave pits? Um, what was particularly the significance of examining dental pipe facets? And also, if you can, uh, briefly uh, touch on the reasons for the craniofacial uh, reconstruction of Skeleton 22. So the first job we had was to get the skeletons, which were individually bagged in as far as was possible, back to the laboratory. And they were cleaned. Uh, and uh, the work on the bioarchaeology, on the analysis of the skeletal material, was done by Dr. Anwen Kafel. And she began to produce results over the winter of uh, 2013. Uh, and I think the first thing that... Uh, she brought to my notice was that all of the individuals that we found were men. And that, that's quite a significant finding because had they been mass burials, perhaps something to do with, uh, with some sort of epidemic, uh, black death, for example, or some sort of mass, uh, mass death involving, um, an epidemic or influenza or something of that sort, you would expect there to be women, you would expect to be young children, you expect to be old men. And we were looking at a group of men in a very narrow age range, uh, between 13 to 25 years old. So that kind of hinted then right away at some kind of military context. We then uh, 
began to find out a little bit more about the the medical conditions and the childhood's conditions of some of these individuals. We found that many of them had rickets, that's to say a, a vitamin D deficiency. Uh, so they had doubtless uh, been suffering in, in their early childhood as babies uh, from a lack of uh, proper nutrition. They also suffered from scurvy, many of them several times in their lives, uh, which is a vitamin C deficiency, as you'll know. Um, and many of them suffered from a condition which is called enamel hyperplasia, which is a kind of pitting of the teeth, which creates grooves which are very visible as the enamel uh, grows uh, on your teeth. You can, you can see it very clearly. And this uh, enamel hyperplasia is very significant in indicating periods of nutritional deficiency or severe stress. And the pitting happens when your body uh, takes a decision that it's going to focus on keeping you alive. Uh, and it's uh, not going to be putting its energy into making you grow and uh, creating enamel for your teeth. And so it doesn't lay down the enamel. And the uh, the result is that you end up with these little holes, uh, which are visible to the bioarchaeologists when analyses of this kind are undertaken. So broadly speaking, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, these were young men, and they were very young, 13 to 25 years old, adolescents, some of them, uh, who had had very difficult childhoods, and very probably uh, their uh, mothers also uh, had had a, a very difficult time. Um, and it indicates periods of uh, famine uh, during during their lives. We also found, and when found, uh, evidence for little dental facets in the front of the teeth. And these are kind of uh, crescents where the teeth have been worn away and in some cases buckled backwards uh, to uh, accept and take uh, a clay pipe, which is gripped between the teeth um, over long periods of time. And it's a these pipe facets, as they're called, are a classic feature of people who, who pipe smoke even today. And actually, they form relatively quickly over a period of uh, six to nine months, I'm told, by my dentist. Um, so they're, they're not unusual things, but they are very important for this project because, of course, they indicate that people were smoking tobacco. And tobacco only arrives in Britain uh, in the early part of the 17th century when it begins to come in in large quantities from the Virginia plantations. So we knew that we were dealing uh, with skeletons that must be dated to after 1612, when the first tobacco arrives, but most likely after 1620, when pipe smoking becomes uh, more fashionable uh, and becomes popular for people who are, as I said, with respect to their medical conditions, people who are perhaps not at the top of the uh, social scale. So all of this we were able to learn from the from the skeletal remains themselves, together with a number of other interesting features. Uh, we found a couple of uh, uh, grooves in the front incisors, in, in 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 some cases, which probably indicate that they were using uh, their their teeth as a kind of third arm. So they were probably holding something in their teeth, much as Inuit communities do today, 
perhaps um, perhaps they were fishermen or perhaps they were textile workers, something of that sort. Um, so there's some hints here at their possible occupations, which we'll, we'll come back to in a moment because it begins to indicate the kind of occupations perhaps which the survivors themselves might have gone into. The other thing we were able to do was to excavate some of the calculus uh, which had formed in behind the teeth. Calculus is uh, this kind of slurry of uh, material inside the mouth uh, which forms if you, you don't clean your teeth. And if you go to a dental hygienist or a dentist, uh, that's the material that they, they try to take off when, you're, when they think your teeth are looking a little bit dirty. Uh, but for an archaeologist, it's a gold mine, uh, and uh, it contains all kinds of material uh, which relates to your occupation. So, you know, for example, if you bite the end of your biro, little bits of plastic might end up with your dental calculus. Or if you're a medieval manuscript painter, you might end up with pigment in the calculus. And in this case, we found uh, food debris. Uh, so we found oats and we found kale brassicas we found evidence of little bits of wood um presumably people biting uh holding something between their teeth perhaps as they're walking on the march who knows um and we also found lots and lots of soot lots and lots of little bits of charcoal which probably come from the very poor environment in which some of these individuals must have lived or or in the, from their from their occupations and again gives us some indication which we'll come to later, about the sorts of activities they might have been uh, perhaps undertaking at the time. So Andrew was able to gather all of this information together. What she didn't find, and this is very significant for the project, is any evidence at all of trauma. So she didn't find evidence that they'd been hit by musket balls or clouted across the head by a pike or anything of that sort. And this, of course, squares up with historical information that Cromwell released on the march those that were healthy uh, and those that were fit for labor and uh, so we don't see in these cases any evidence at all of some of the traumas that you might expect in a typical battlefield victim uh, and so putting all of this evidence together begins to tell us something of a biography of some of the individuals who died and we selected one skeleton skeleton 22 we never we never gave him a name who was a young man who died we think just before his 21st birthday uh he almost certainly died of influenza like like all the others there were no marks on his body to indicate anything different uh but his skeleton was particularly intact and we were able to say a lot about him where he'd been born where he'd lived during his life his uh, aches and pains in his body, his back conditions. Uh, he, I think I know more about his medical file than I do about my own. Um, and uh, we were able to to put together a, a three-dimensional facial reconstruction. We didn't do that ourselves. That was done by Liverpool John Moores University by a group of fantastically talented people there, led by Caroline Wilkinson at Face Lab. And they do a lot of work on modern homicide victims. Uh, and uh, they came and uh, pieced together the, the cranium and then they scanned it. Uh, and then uh, they were able to reconstruct the subcutaneous fat and thickness of skin. 
to produce a face which um i guess gives a face to to all of these soldiers um whose names of course we don't know um so i think for many people that was quite a moving uh, part of the project some of its guesswork of course you don't know the color of their eyes you don't know whether they had any tattoos you don't know whether they had a beard or whether they had a stubble or even you don't know what kind of color hair they had but i'm told by caroline that it's good enough that if their father or their mother walked into the room they would be able to identify their child um so that's good enough for me um and uh, we we produced that uh, that 3d uh craniofacial reconstruction which we then also reproduced in in three dimensions for the exhibition um, that we did later on in the project and it attracted a huge amount of interest can you describe uh, the process of re- radiocarbon dating of the remains including application of uh, bayesian statistics and wiggle matching as well as isotopic analysis of the tooth enamel that you mentioned for the determination of childhood origins in scotland and northern continental europe and elsewhere what did your team ultimately conclude from studying dietary evidence in the context of highland and lowland mobilities across firmtons and seaports? And finally, why did you decline DNA analysis? Sure, I mean, this this is a little bit a uh, little bit complicated. I'll try and I'll try and keep it as simple as I can. I'm not a yeah. Go I'm ahead. Not, <laughs> I, I'm not a, I'm not myself um, a specialist in Bayesian statistics, but I can uh, I can tell you the principles. Um, we knew uh, the date at which they died. We knew how old they were when they died, whether they were 17 years old or 23 years old. And, uh, of course, your teeth erupt, your molars erupt at different times in your life. Um, and so we were able to radiocarbon date a number of teeth for each individual and then to take those radiocarbon dates and try to fit them against the radiocarbon curve. And that uh, gives you an increasing, an ever-increasing accuracy uh, to the radiocarbon dating technique. And it's a, it's a technique which we had to develop, actually, specifically for this project, which is very similar to the kind of work that people do on tree ring dating or dendrochronology. But in this case, we were maxing, m- matching the little wiggles in the curve against the radiocarbon curve. And that gave us a very precise date uh, ranging from they're the middle of the 1640s through to the early 1650s. And so uh, that gave us a major clue uh, as to uh, what sort of date the individuals might have been. We were also able to combine, using Bayesian statistics, the radiocarbon dates with two other crucial bits of chronology. The first was uh, that the men smoked tobacco and so... You know, they must be dated uh, after 1620. They couldn't be earlier than that. And then also by looking in detail at some of the standing buildings that these individuals were buried beneath, so knowing that the buildings came later, and looking at maps on which those buildings appeared, we were able to narrow down a kind of window in which these individuals might have been buried sometime between 1620 and 1756. And with the benefit of the wiggle matching technique, 1650 was the date we were able to come up with. So that's how that worked. The isotope analysis 
is a technique which has been undertaken for a number of different archaeological communities over the past uh, decade or so, usually prehistoric communities, it has to be said, not usually applied to, to early modern communities in the way that we did here. Um, but the idea is that you get a kind of uh, a GPS reading, if you like, uh, by looking at a couple of isotopes, by looking at strontium and oxygen isotopes specifically. Strontium is taken up by your bones into your body through the plants that you eat, uh, through the vegetables on your plate. Uh, and those plants take up the strontium from the local geology. So if you know where there are high strontium readings in plants and there's a, a lot of strontium in the bedrock, uh, then you can match an individual uh, against those strontium outcrops. And that gives you a number of broad areas of geology where a person might come from. So that's one of the crosshairs of the, of the GPS, if you like. The other crosshair comes from oxygen, and oxygen uh, enters into the collagen in your bones because of the water that you drink. Now, these days, if you drink bottled water, that's pretty unhelpful to archaeologists because that bottled water is coming from uh, uh, springs which are probably many, many miles and kilometers away from where you live. Uh, but in the past, people drank water from their local well. And that means that if you can get that oxygen signature and you know the different rainfall patterns, you've got another crosshair on the GPS. And if you take those two together, at least in the British Isles, it can begin, in very broad terms, to be able to pin down where individuals might have come from, where they spent their childhoods. And of course, if you look at individual teeth in the mouth, which uh, the enamel is growing at different points during their childhood, you can watch their journey across the British, British Isles, effectively, uh, from their birth right the way through, in this case, to their deaths in Durham. So it, it offers an opportunity to track their biographies. In terms of the uh, dietary uh, evidence uh, that we were uh, able to extract, a lot of that uh, is uh, uh, indicating to us that they may have had some kind of Scottish diet. So the kind of kale and the oats that they're eating are probably familiar to you in, in porridges and stews of various kinds, which would have been eaten during the 17th century. So entirely consistent with the kind of historical evidence that we are, we are noting from, uh, from the battlefield. Uh, the other interesting thing, uh, as you mentioned, is their mobility, because these guys moved around a lot. Uh, and some of them probably had already joined the army some years previously. Others of them uh, had probably joined only recently. And on one occasion, I, I gave a lecture on this topic and somebody at the end during questions said to me, look, you know, I think if you've got three children, you don't give away the youngest because that's closest to the mother. And you don't give away the oldest because the oldest is closest to being able to make a contribution to the farm. It tells to, tends to be the middle kid who you offer up when the steward or the bailiff comes knocking at the door and they're looking for, in inverted commas, volunteers uh, for the army. Uh, and the profile of the ages of the individuals that we've got in this case very much does seem to fit that pattern. So I think they came from all over Scotland. 
And I think it's quite likely they didn't all speak English. Uh, if they came from the Highlands, they probably spoke Gaelic. Um, and it's very likely that some of them knew each other. They would have come from the same firm tunes, these, these extended villages um, that were the settlements in Scotland at this time. You know, or perhaps uh, they were kin. Uh, they they uh, may have been blood relatives. They may have been uh, brothers and fathers and cousins. And this is particularly remarkable because, as we'll see, a number of descendants are still around of the survivors, uh, those who got out of Durham. And I think what this is telling us is that some of those individuals who are around today, many of them living in the Boston area in the US, they are probably related, or some of them may well be related uh, to the individuals who we found uh, on that day back in November 2013. So this brings me to DNA analysis. Now, the DNA analysis can tell you various things. We have actually undertaken some DNA analysis um, and the DNA is very well preserved. The DNA work that we've done has been on a very preliminary basis. And what it's told us uh, is that all of the individuals that we found were men. Uh, and that backs up the, the work that Anne Wynne did. She was able to sex about 75% of the individuals, but not all of them. The DNA has, as it were, tidied that up and told us that they were indeed all men. Uh, it's also enabled us to match some of the DNA signatures to uh, each other. And that shows us that some of the individuals were related to each other. Probably son and father, uh, some kind of relationship like that. And it also confirms the likely probability that they were Scottish, something we'd already gathered from the isotope evidence. Now, the question I think you're asking is, why didn't we do DNA analysis to link the skeletal evidence back to the descendants who are still alive today? And the answer to that is, this is a question of odds. Uh, if you remember, there are 1,600 people who died. And of those 1,600, we excavated about 30. We have DNA from about 12. And so to begin to match those 12 individuals back to the survivors, which we have about 1,300 in total, those are long odds. And DNA analysis is not cheap. Uh, it is true that there are perhaps half a million descendants of the Scottish prisoners from Dunbar in the US living today. If they all put in a dollar, uh, we could do the DNA analysis. But it's going to cost over $100,000 to get it done. And it's quite possible that it may not come back with any matches. And so that's the reason uh, that the work has not been done up to this point. From the perspective of an academic, as I am, uh, it wouldn't tell me a huge amount more about the story if I did get a match. And the interest in this really lies with those descendant communities. And so we are hopeful uh, that the money might be raised to get further work done. We think it can be done. We think technologically it's possible. And we have retained 
very, very small samples of bone material, which will allow us to undertake that work in the future, microscopic samples. Um, so the possibility still exists, but at the moment, the project is still going on and uh, we'll wait to see uh, what happens in the future. Thanks for the clarification. Can you also briefly discuss archival evidence for the uh, Atlantic uh, diaspora from France to Barbados of the surviving Dunbar captives, including those missing 200 intended for Virginia colony? Sure. There's, there's, there's really quite a lot of evidence as to what happens to the survivors. We're trying to account here in total for about 1,300 men. We know of the numbers who go into local coal mines, they go into local salt works. We know that some go into local linen industries, kind of startup industries, making scotch cloth in nearby Newcastle. Um, and it's interesting, if you recall what I said about some of these men having little notches in their teeth. You know, I wonder whether some of them weren't weavers and some of the survivors went into that industry. So some of the men were employed locally. We know about 500 men went to France to fight. We don't know what happened to them. They disappear off the historical radar. There's still work to be done on historical records in France. See if we can find out more. We know another 500 go down to the Fens. That's East Anglia in the area around Ely in Cambridge today. And they were involved there in drainage digging, in digging these long channels for water to, to drain the marshes there to get the water out to sea. And they stayed there for about a year before they were released and sent back to Scotland. But the men that I guess you're interested in are the ones who crossed the Atlantic. And we know, we know that uh, some of them do go to Barbados. Now, it's a real question who goes to Barbados and when they go to Barbados. There are no records in Barbados to tell us. I don't think that they go to Barbados immediately. Uh, it's more likely that they go a little bit later. And it's very likely that these are officers who go. Uh, I've been talking up until now about the ordinary men uh, from the battle who are locked up in, 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 in Durham. But the officers end up outside Newcastle in a place called Tynemouth Castle. And they stay there for a number of years. And I wonder if it's not those officers who end up going to Barbados. Then there are uh, men who are certainly destined uh, for Virginia. And Cromwell, immediately after the battle, says, when he's discussing about what to do with the men, he suggests that maybe Virginia would be an appropriate destination. The plantations there, uh, tobacco plantations, are in need of large amounts of labor. And the idea of uh, cheap labor in the form of indentured servants, young, fit men, um, he thinks that that would be a useful uh, destination for them to be sent to. So it's certainly kind of on the on people's minds right from an early stage and then people discuss ireland as well but nobody goes to ireland because the fighting more or less is is over by that point and then new england comes onto the agenda and this is because there are influential voices in whitehall who are invested financially invested uh, in ironworks uh, and in the frontier timberlands in what is now southern Maine. Uh, and they are wanting to to see products from those areas begin to make their way back towards Europe. And so the idea of sending cheap labor out there 
sounds to them like a good and interesting uh, thing to be doing. Uh, so I think that uh, most of the men end up uh, going, about 150 of them, going out towards New England, uh, out to Boston. Uh, and nobody, in fact, uh, goes to Virginia because right at the last minute, just as the men are about to depart, the group who are moored up on a hulk, on a, an old boat in the Thames, they get sick again. So dysentery breaks out. And there are about 300 men on this boat, and they must separate out the sick. They go into local uh, hospitals, they're called pest houses, and they probably make their way home from there. And that leaves them only with 150. And that just isn't enough to send to Virginia. And in any case, Virginia has already declared for the king. And so it's not really in the parliamentarian's interest, in Cromwell's interest, to send young men to effectively what he would have regarded as an enemy colony. Uh, and so they think again. Uh, they think about uh, security, about not wanting these men back on the doorstep again. Um, and they decide to send them instead to New England, to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So that's why people don't go to Virginia. That's why they don't go to Barbados. That's why New England is the favoured destination. It, had there been more survivors, I think more would have ended up going across the Atlantic. As you've already alluded to, uh, you provide archival evidence that Dutchman John Becks purchased approximately 150 of these Dunbar captives as indentured servants for the Braintree and Hammersmith Ironworks in Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, Captain Augustine Walker set sail for New England with these 150 prisoners aboard the Ketch dubbed Unity on November 11, 1650, a little over two months after the Battle of Dunbar. So what were the captives' experience in crossing the Atlantic to New England? And what does archival evidence indicate about their condition upon arrival? So the John Beck's character you mentioned is a, is a London merchant. He's a, he's a man of Dutch descent. And he's got his fingers in the pies of uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and specifically in the ironworks. Actually, not just ironworks there, also ironworks in, in England. Uh, so uh, he understands the need. Uh, for getting these young men um, across the Atlantic. He has a financial interest in doing so. Captain Augustine Walker, who is the master of the ship, the Unity, which is a catch, it's a, a three-masted ship, probably would have had about uh, uh, probably a maximum capacity of about 200 people in all. Uh, Augustine Walker is a really interesting character. He's English. He's born in Berwick-upon-Tweed. Uh, so right up there on the Scottish-English border, through which, incidentally, the Dunbar prisoners marched and they made their way back to Durham. And he is an Atlantic man of mystery uh, in the middle of the 17th century. Uh, he has a house in the Azores. He has a house in Boston. Um, and he's ferrying as a rich merchant anything that people will give him across the Atlantic. And he wants to get people there as quickly as possible and the minimum time in order to turn around and make his way back again. Uh, actually, Augustine Walker dies only a few years later in Bilbao in northern Spain. So he certainly moves around a lot. But he is the star in the story in many ways because some of these transatlantic voyages are taking up to 23 weeks 
at this period, 23 weeks, and they only have food for eight, which they can carry on board. So these are horrendous experiences in some cases in which many people die, not least because in this case the prisoners, I'm guessing, we don't know, probably would have been locked below deck. Can you imagine the seasickness? Most of these would never have been on a boat before, I'm guessing. They had no idea where they were going. They had no idea where the colony was. Um, they were far away from their family. They knew they were leaving their parents behind. It must have been an absolutely terrifying experience for them. But Walker got them there in six weeks, uh, which is um, almost uh, uh, Titanic uh, speed of voyage. Um, and uh, he managed to do that without them running out of food. And as far as we know, nobody died. And I think that's quite remarkable. Somebody did die, Michael Davison, died only a couple of days uh, after the Unity uh, moored up in Boston Harbour. Um, but on the voyage itself, we're not aware of any deaths at all. And it looks to me, looking at the New England archives, like that's right. I think I can account for, you know, 120, 130 of these individuals straight off. So there's no reason to, to believe that many died on the voyage or indeed any died on the voyage. So correct me if I'm wrong, but archival evidence uh, also indicates that approximately, approximately 37 Dunbar captives were sent to work in the Hammersmith Ironworks and Farm, many as woodcutters, 17 to a Boston Ironworks warehouse, three or four to the Oyster River Mills, several to the Listen Mill, seven to the Great Works uh, River Mill in present-day Maine, nine to the Braintree Ironworks, 10 to households for domestic servants, and 10 to unknown Bay Colony destinations. So in the context of the comparative history of New England indentured servitude, as well as the uh, early provisioning trade to the uh, greater Caribbean, what does archival evidence reveal about the nature of their labor, especially at the ironworks and as woodcutters, their living conditions in the uh, so-called Scotsman's house, and any deviant behavior? Okay, I think the first thing to be clear about is what we mean by an indentured servant. Um, these were unwilling immigrants. Uh, they would have had no idea where they were going and probably very little interest in going there. Uh, many of them, as I've already said, probably didn't even speak English. So it would, was very much terra incognita as far as they were concerned. They went as indentured servants, which means that they had to labor for a period of seven years, generally speaking. And this was treated as labor by their master. So they would have been, in inverted commas, purchased on the quayside, although in the case of the men who were going to the ironworks, who had already been bought and paid for by Bex, these men already, uh, uh, their destination was already signed and sealed, as it were. But they probably never had any paperwork. And in any case, it probably wasn't paperwork they would have been able to read, quite frankly. Um, but it's important to say um, that their position um, as indentured servants meant that they could look forward uh, to being released as prisoners after seven years, and then they would become freeborn citizens. You know, so they had to do this period of enforced service, but it was not permanent and it was not heritable. That's to say, if they had children, and many of them did have children, 
um, they didn't follow their parents uh, in, in, in taking up that particular um, category of indentured servant. Many, many thousands of people uh, came to the colonies in the period between 1630 and 1650. 13,000 people traveled just in the decade between 1630 to 1640. Most of them were English and most of them came as indentured servants and they came voluntarily. So they would not in any way have been thought of by local Puritan communities as being unusual, except in respect of their accent and except in respect in some cases of the language that they were speaking to each other uh, and except that they were in a sense a community which was already bonded together by by common experience and it must have been the case that they were split up into these small communities that you've already mentioned some going into domestic service you know some going to the ironworks some going up to the timberlands in maine um and they all must have had individual experiences you know cousin being separated from cousin brother being separated from cousin they were young and uh, as the documents say they were fond of frolicking uh there's a nice document with respect to the ironworks uh, in Saugus, which is uh, uh, now uh, run by the National Park Service, it was actually excavated in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Um, and there's a nice quote uh, associated with that place by a traveller, a visitor who comes to the site and sees these Scottish prisoners. And uh, he says that, uh, uh, a quote, one or two has done naughty works with the maidens living hereabouts. So, you know, they got up to the kind of things I guess young men are likely to get up to, and they're in no way exceptional amongst the uh, colony communities uh, in doing that. Um, some of them ended up in quite important households, particularly domestic servants. Uh, one of them ended up in the household of uh, Thomas Dudley. Uh, he was the governor to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was the man, actually, who signed the uh, charter for um, Harvard in 1650 um so one of the uh one of the dunbar prisoners was actually there probably present uh when that charter was signed so i'm guessing that he would have had an experience of living in a rich household others of them were not so fortunate because they didn't get on perhaps with their masters we know of cases where uh, somebody was whipped uh for their for their behavior um and we know the names of some of these individuals then as they begin to crop up in court records there's a guy called Ross Gilchrist uh, who I uh, who I like because uh, he comes up in a case uh, being named as Killycross Ross uh, in his case of two Irish indentured servants who claim to have been kidnapped and uh, Ross gives testimony uh, in this court case uh, when they try to escape these two Irish, and he gives evidence as to when they're first taken on as indentured servants. So right from the start, 1650, December 1650, when they arrive, they begin to crop up uh, in in records. And yes, uh, you might like to think of uh, them uh, being involved in, in deviant behavior of one sort or another. I don't look at it that way at all. Uh, I, I think that um, these are young men trying to get on in life in a new world, very, very unfamiliar surroundings, in a completely different landscape, 
and all I had uh, was the memory of Scotland and their mates, uh, who they'd been through this uh, horrendous uh, experience with. If possible, uh, please uh, briefly discuss biographical examples of the Dunbar captives after completion of their indentures, um, perhaps addressing their roles in the establishment of uh, communities such as Unity in Scotland, uh, as well as their contributions to Block Island. Um, the Scottish garrisons uh, constructed across uh, wartime New England, and maybe their uh, family, marriage, and friendship networks, as well as any further deviant behavior. <laughs> yes, the, we do know a lot uh, about what became of these men a remarkable amount, really. The records in New England for the 17th and early 18th centuries are extraordinarily rich. And by delving into those records, uh, things like, for example, uh, probate inventories, which tell us about what they had in their houses when they died, um, by looking at their gravestones, uh, by looking at national history as it starts to become, um, as we emerge uh, from uh, colonial life, um, we can begin to see the Scots taking up a position in society. The first thing that they do is they form a charitable society, the Scots Charitable Society, which is the oldest charitable society of its kind in the Western Hemisphere. It still survives and it spends its money on uh, young university students who uh, uh, can't afford to get to university uh, and it pays their tuition fees. Uh, in the 17th century, uh, a number of our Dunbar prisoners were involved in the society, started it up, they're there on day one, uh, paying small amounts of money into the kitty to help with nursing sick men, uh, to help with their costs of funerals, uh, anything that they might need for those that were in need. Uh, in the latter 17th part of the 17th century was paid for by the charitable society. Some of the men uh, then get involved together in some cases in King Philip's War, uh, fighting against Native Americans when sawbill, sawmills are burnt down and garrisons are attacked. Three of the men uh, have been able to track lost their lives during that war, and some of them had their wives and children uh, kidnapped, um, sent to Montreal. In some cases they were ransomed. There are some quite extraordinary uh, stories of these individual families. And as you say, they begin to form communities of their own. So I think it's very moving, really, that when they are released from their indenture, they they sort of coalesce, they come together. You know, whether or not they're they hear about where others are living, where Scottish communities are being set up. In some cases, we know that they write to each other. Um, but in any case, they become neighbours. And we have uh, been able to, to map out the individual houses uh, in Maine, around what is now South Berwick, uh, where they lived. In fact, I could uh, take you, with the help of uh, American colleagues and archaeologists, out to their sites of their houses and their burial grounds uh, and that is a, a quite remarkable thing you can walk down the banks of the river uh, looking through the trees and the woodland past the rattlesnakes and the bears um, at uh, at the timber 
you know, that they would have seen, that they would have cut down as part of their livelihoods. Imagine the sawmills easily enough down there by by the rivers and streams and stand in the positions of their houses. And I always like uh, to think about one individual, a guy called Mickham McIntyre, Malcolm McIntyre, as perhaps we would translate that into English. And Mickham McIntyre held what was described as, in inverted commas, the frontier lot. So he was the man right on the edge of the colony. You know, beyond him, uh, there was nothing except Native Americans and French all the way up through to Canada. And the interesting thing, uh, I think, about that is that these communities were set up on the peripheries of the Puritan communities. So I guess they were a little bit out of sight, out of mind. They were tough men with experience of a military life, and they got involved with these kind of activities, you know, right through until the day they died. And I find it extraordinarily moving that they came to name the districts that they formed at that time in the late 1650s and early 1660s after the places and memories that they'd had of their past lives. So we know that there is a district called Unity, which is named after the boat that they travelled in across the Atlantic, and a place called Scotland. And uh, I like to think of uh, these uh, individuals being born in Scotland and dying in Scotland, but uh, a Scotland of their own making. So why didn't any of the Dunbar captives in New England return to Scotland or leave or, or you know, they, they left pretty minimal documentary evidence of loved loved ones in Scotland? I mean, what uh, what can graves and associated symbolism, which you've already alluded to, tell us about their lives and longevities or lack thereof? Uh, this is really, really, really fascinating. I think it's clear from some of the documentary evidence that they, some of them were already married. Uh, and a period of time had to pass both in Scotland and in the colony before they were allowed to remarry. But some of them are accused effectively of, of bigamy uh, and uh, have to wait uh, before before they can marry and, and have children. And as you say, uh, as far as we know, none of them came home. And I think the reasons for that are probably several. The first is that you know, this was a society in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in which uh, you built up friendships, you built up debts, financial debts, as well as uh, debts of favor uh, to family and to friends. Uh, and to return to Scotland to break those debts I think uh, would have been very difficult. I think that their friendship and family ties tied them to the colony, particularly once they got married and once they had children. And, you know, I think you can see resonances in modern immigrant communities when I say that. I also, I also think uh, that we know many of them lived to quite an age. I was surprised to see that. Many of them lived to their 70s and 80s, which is an age to live to. Uh, at the end of the 17th and the early 18th centuries. Uh, they lived to an age, many of them had many children, and I think, you know, as today, the decisions that we take about our aged loved ones as children um, are probably ours, and generally speaking, not the choices of parents. It's those that uh, we leave behind 
people bury us who make those choices for us. Um, and I think that those relatives, those children, first generation, uh, living in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they had uh, all their ties there, no ties to Scotland. And for that reason, they did not wish their aged fathers uh, to return home. So that's the major reason they didn't come back. I think also it's fair to say that they had tremendous opportunity uh, being in the colony. When they ceased to be indentured servants, so they had, well, they were often given uh, land. Uh, they were able to earn money. Some of them became quite wealthy. Uh, if we look in their probate inventories, um, when they die, we can see how much money they were, in inverted commas, how much money they were worth. And some of them are, you know, in the middle and upper um, echelons of society by the time they die. So they work hard. They buy farms, they buy sawmills, they're well employed, they have skills, um, and they make a new life for themselves. And I think, frankly, that uh, their counterparts in Scotland did not have those opportunities. And for that reason, um, they, they did not return. Uh, there, is a, there is a lovely quote uh, from 1685 uh, from somebody who um, claims to be, in inverted commas, a slave from Dunbar. And he is said to be living in Woodbridge in New Jersey. And he's living like a Scots laird, it says. And he says that he wishes his countrymen and native soil well, but he never intends to see it. What was the, uh, going back full circle to uh, England and the grave pits, what was the rationale and logistics for reburial near Durham Cathedral um, for the uh, Dunbar captives who perished there? Why not repatriate their remains to Scotland, uh, perhaps to the site of the Battle of Dunbar, to a more neutral location, location such as uh, Edinburgh or uh, Stirling? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that we were only able to excavate, in some cases, parts of their bodies. So there are other bodies and parts of the bodies that we excavated which are still in the ground. And we undertook quite a lot of consultation with stakeholders both in Scotland and in England, where the view was strongly voiced that parts of body should not be separated from parts of body, uh, and that the right thing to do was to bury these individuals as close as we could uh, to where they had been found. We couldn't bury them in the cathedral because the cathedral is closed for, uh, for burials. It has been since the late 19th century, actually. Um, and so the nearest active public cemetery was considered to be the most appropriate. The second uh, thing which factored into our thinking, um, again, something which people stood up and voiced in the meetings that we held, uh, was this this idea that comrades should not be separated from comrade, the idea that brother should not be separated from brother. And to a certain extent, this was influenced, I think, by some of the stories of those who made it across the Atlantic. Uh, because we could see there that those that survived were, were very had built these very powerful communities that they had very strong bonds with each other, and the feeling was that to separate one group of men, twenty eight of them, move them north of the border and leave another one thousand two hundred odd still in the ground uh, was not the right thing to do. Uh, so to separate them by any distance, again, was, was not thought to be the right thing. 
The other thing uh, to mention, which we haven't mentioned so far, I think, is that the isotope evidence uh, told us that some of these men were not Scottish. So we knew that there were at least three men, two of them older men, in their early 40s, who probably came from Baltic countries, probably from what is now Sweden uh, and the north of Germany. Uh, and we think that they're likely to be mercenaries. So they probably were paid to be uh, brought into uh, the Scottish army at this time. So to return those people back to, well, you know, where? Back to Sweden, back to North Germany, back to Scotland. Um, it's a difficult argument. There's also a very different legal context here. I appreciate that many of the people who will be listening to this podcast uh, may well be in the US. Um, uh, and if you are, then you will know uh, that you have the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act there, uh, the NAGPRA legislation, which is, you know, is a, is a, it, frankly a world leading piece of legislation on, on matters of repatriation. We don't have uh, a similar piece of legislation here. Uh, in fact, in, in, in the UK, uh, there is no ownership in inverted commas. There is no ownership. There is no property to be had in a human skeleton. It can't actually belong to anybody. Um, and it is not archaeological practice, I should say, perhaps in brackets at present, who knows where we're going in the future, but it is not archaeological practice to return people or bodies back to the place of their birth or the clan uh, from which they may have come on the basis of archaeological evidence. You know, archaeological evidence of the sort I've been talking about, like isotope evidence, you know, which can only pin you down to a very broad region. So it's hard to know on the basis of isotope evidence to put a pin in the map and say, this is where this individual came from. We can do it for a broad region in some cases, um, but it's not enough uh, to be able to uh, take people, in inverted commas, take them home. Um, and I think, uh, finally, uh, it's worthwhile bearing in mind that in order to excavate human remains in England, um, and Durham is in England, not in Scotland, uh, you need a license to do that. And the license comes from the Ministry of Justice, and our legal system uh, generally requires uh, for archaeological bodies to be buried um, close to the place in which they were found, which is you know, what happened in this, intra in this, in 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 this instance. Very few of them, of course, came from Dunbar. The individuals who we found, they didn't come from Dunbar, although, although the battle took place there. So we didn't feel that was appropriate. But again, we did discuss quite widely, both with the Scottish Church and with Scottish politicians, uh, as to what their feelings were. And uh, the general feeling was that they were happy uh, for there to be a burial in Durham. But I would say... Uh, that there was a petition, an online petition, over a thousand people signed it uh, to say that the burials should have taken place uh, back in Scotland. Uh, and, you know, that's something that uh, I think was a possibility we were always open to and a possibility that we wanted to discuss thoroughly. But it was by no means the unanimous view uh, and it would have been, I think, difficult on the basis of uh, what some of the other stakeholders said to us 
um, to do that. And so we, we had to come to a compromise. I don't think there are any clear rights and wrongs in this debate. And the debate, uh, as you know from experiences in the US, is very much one which is has moved and is still moving. So who knows where we'll be uh, in a few decades' time. Mm, yes. Um, I have a uh, follow-up question. Uh, what A final follow-up follow question. What can we expect uh, from you next uh, that you can disclose? Are you uh, working on a new book or a, a, a new dig or are you, um, are you planning a vacation or what? <laughs> a vacation would be good. Maybe I could... <laughs> Maybe I could come over and uh, and see you. Um, <laughs> the, um, yeah, we have a lot of work going on. I mean, I you know, the thing which has really surprised me about this project uh, was on the day the results were announced, we 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 had a website ready to go, and we had a lot of press attention. And when we looked at the Google Analytics for you know, where people were logging in for the website, we found thousands and thousands of people logging in from the States. And these, of course, were all the descendants. And I began to do work on that. I realized then what a strong community it was. There's a, there's a, there is an active and communicating com uh, community there uh, of Scottish descendants who have done some fantastic research of their own. And then I discovered uh, that there were a couple of potential Hollywood celebrity descendants. Um, and by chance, uh, at the same time as I was working on that, um, the program, Who Do You Think You Are?, which you have in the US, got in touch uh, and they decided they were going to do a program on the star of Pretty in Pink and Two and a Half Men, a guy called John Cryer. I'm sure you've perhaps heard of him. And uh, John Cryer is a descendant of one of the Scottish prisoners, a guy called James Adams, who actually went to the Saugus Ironworks. And so I worked with that program on developing his story. Actually, there's another uh, Hollywood celebrity, too, uh, who is Kate Upton. And Kate Upton is also um, uh, related uh, to one of the uh, Dunbar prisoners, although I don't believe she knows that. Um, and, uh, I've tried, uh, to put the information out there, but people like Kate Upton are very difficult to get messages to. So if anybody out there or perhaps listening to this, uh, has a means of making Kate aware that she has Scottish ancestry, this is your moment. Um, so those, there's a couple of lines we'd like to take forward. And I, you know, we could work on all of these individual biographies and I would love to do that. There's, there's tremendous possibilities, not so much to excavate in the UK, but maybe to hook up with colleagues in the US to do uh, excavations on sites there. Wouldn't that be fabulous? It would be great to find out more about the material culture of these individuals um, and to tell a little bit of their story once they arrive uh, in, in the colony. So, yes, I mean, I have a in my head uh, a number of, projects, maybe PhD projects, doctoral projects, some of them smaller ones, and some of them really quite big, ambitious projects, which I would love to get funding for. And we would really like to take forward the DNA uh, side of it as well, if we can uh, bring together the funding for that. So I don't see this, pro this project going away anytime soon. 
Well, thank you for being on the show today, uh, Professor Gerard. It's a pleasure. The study is uh, Lost Lives, New Voices, Unlocking the Stories of the Scottish Soldiers from the Battle, Battle of Dunbar, 1650, published uh, last year, uh, 2018, by Oxbow Books. This is Ryan Tripp on behalf of the New Books Network, um, the, the Archaeology Channel, as well as Professor Gerard. Um, we'll uh, we'll uh, hopefully you'll tune in next time. <laughs>